Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Um, I talked to you a couple of weeks ago and was starting a raised bed um, and was, was talking about getting some soil. You mentioned the place that, and I'm not going to bring up any names, just to keep you out of trouble, but you mentioned the place that I was saying I was going to get it and uh, said something about weeds, but I went and got what they call the four-way garden mix. Uh-huh. And it seemed to have a lot of, uh, of bark, or not bark, but uh, wood. wood pieces in it yeah. uh, still, uh, and seemed pretty hot. Is that a good garden bed mix to plant in this fall? It probably is as good a garden mix as you're going to find. It takes time for soil to mature, so to speak. It takes time for the wood fiber and various other things that may not fully be fully decomposed to really break down and reach their optimum point. I used to fuss at Malcolm Beck for, um, you know, selling soil before it was ready, selling compost before it was ready. And he said, Bob, I have to. He said, if I, if I don't sell it now, by the time it's really ready, it will have shrunk to half the volume and I can't make enough money to stay in business. So uh, no, it's not the best soil in the world, but it's probably as good a soil as you're going to find out there. Uh, I'm more concerned, you know, that it is still pretty hot than I am about the wood fiber in there because everybody has a lot of wood in there. Hopefully these folks uh, didn't include any treated pallets or treated lumber or things like that. But uh, um, anyway, in any event... The I would, you know, I would probably if you have or can find any truly finished compost, I might work a little bit more of that in there. At the very minimum, I would go ahead, you know, as soon as possible, meaning this afternoon, if possible, get some good organic fertilizer, whether it's Medina, Micro, Nature's Creation, Espoma. There are lots of good ones out there. Go ahead and apply your fertilizer to that bed, even though you may be a couple of weeks away from planting, because it takes time for the microbes to really start converting the fertilizer into things your plants can absorb and use. And when you do start planting, and right now about the only thing I'm going to tell you to really plant looking forward to fall is probably broccoli. Broccoli takes the heat a whole lot better than cauliflower or cabbage. And especially since that soil is on the warm side, it's probably too warm for your cool weather seeds to germinate. And I personally think we're still two to four weeks away from planting seeds for things like lettuce and uh, chard and lots of those other things we plant in the fall. But uh, um, expect that this year the soil is going to be okay. Next year the soil is going to be better. Uh, Two years from now, you're probably going to have some outstanding garden soil. But um, it's just I, the only thing you could do differently is if you could find a creek bottom where you could go dig some of your own soil, if you could find some fully mature compost and mix in with that, and if you could maybe tarp it and let it solarize for a while to kill the weed seeds, uh, you could have a better soil, but very few of us have the time to do that or the places to go and, you know, get all those things. So, um you're off to a good start, but, you know, set your expectations not terribly high uh, because, like I say, it's going to take that soil time to truly mature. Now, even at the beginning, you're going to grow better fruits and vegetables than you could buy in the grocery store for sure. 
But if you keep records, some years I'm better about it than others, but if you keep records of your production and of the quality of your produce, you're going to definitely see a big increase in both of those things over the next two years. So you're you're off to a good start, but things are going to get better and better down the line. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I, in the call that I called previously, I had put um, some logs down in the bottom because I'd seen something online about filling up with the bottom. And, yeah. And so I... I, and you said not to do that. I didn't up using more fertilizer. Well, what I have done is I took all the logs out, but there were still a bunch of leafy branches and stuff mm-hmm. down in the very bottom of this thing. I covered them up, yeah. figuring I'll just put a bunch of fertilizer. So I went ahead and threw fertilizer in the thing after I got my first layer of, of soil in and kind of a pretty, just got a basically a 32-ounce drink cup and, and just threw it out there all around in the bottom of the bed. Mm-hmm. Basically, a bag of fertilizer in a in a thirty by eight foot bed, okay. and uh, and so I've got that much fertilizer in there, and figured I would come in with a couple more layers. But I didn't know if New Earth would have something that was more you know real soil like. If I've made that drive, I'm up northwest northeast, so it'd be a pretty good drop sure. down to ITN to get to New Earth, but. Uh, didn't know if theirs was broken down any more than this would be. You know, it it I you really have to look and see. Um, have you put this soil into your beds yet? The what you yes. already have, and how the full are your beds? Is, yes. How full are your beds? How full are your beds? How close to the top of the uh, surrounding structure? And how how Part close? Of the way. I, I used corrugated aluminum uh-huh. or corrugated tin, right? And saw some of those that were kind of cool looking, and I. And I wanted something that was high enough that I could work. I'm getting old enough that I don't like squatting down all the time. <laughs> or bending over all the time. I know the feeling. <laughs> so I nearly killed myself unloading a load of dirt into that, that bed. But uh, anyway, it's about a third of the way full, maybe not quite that much. So I've got two or three more loads to get. Yeah. You know, you... Um, and and let's see, you said it's uh, 8 by 30? How about how big? Uh, maybe maybe six by thirty. Six by thirty, so we got a hundred and eighty. I made it wide enough that I could reach to the middle without too much difficulty. So around six by thirty. Okay, so a hundred and eighty square feet, and if you were to add six inches of soil to that, you would need about ninety cubic feet of uh, soil, which is going to calculate out to about three to four cubic yards. Um, for that much soil, you may want to just have them bring a small dump truck load. I mean, stone and soil would deliver to you. New Earth would deliver to you. Um, that five-yard truck, uh, I would actually not mind mounding the soil up a little bit because it's going to shrink. It's going to settle. So I think when you look at cost and, you know, your time's worth something, um, it may be, you know, dollar-wise, you may just want to call... You're going to get newer soil if you buy from Stone and Soil Depot. You're going to get newer soil if you go directly to New Earth. And the price should be the same on soil. I'm not sure about delivery. But at this point, I would imagine that you're going to get uh, as good a soil as you're going to find anywhere. And when you consider, you know, that hour, hour and a half of travel time and loading time, you're thinking of doing that three times. All of a sudden, you've got four and a half hours of your time right. invested in it and a substantial amount of gasoline, 
I would call one or the other and say, you know, find out how much it costs you just to have them bring their small truck. I know Stone and Soils is five yards because they visit me on a somewhat frequent basis. But uh, at this point, uh, I'd probably get that soil brought to you and, um, you know, go from there. I, um, you're you're going to need close to a five-yard load to fill that. And within the first six months, it's going to settle a good two inches. So if you kind of berm it up a little bit in the middle right now, that's not going to really affect how you plant or what you plant, and it's going to save you some additional work down the road. Right. Okay. One last thing. Uh, I have another one that I'm making. I haven't started it yet, but but I was going to use cinder blocks. I've got a ton yeah. of cinder blocks laying around for some reason, and I uh, was going to use those and stack them probably too high, make it not quite as tall as the other one. Right. But uh, I was thinking of using the black plastic around the inside to keep the cinder block from wicking the moisture out from the soil is that a good idea or not not a bad idea but you're not going to accomplish much uh the cinder block is not going to wick much moisture if this was a you know terracotta if you'd done it with chimney tiles or something like that uh you'd have a little bit of wicking going on but you're basically looking at a fairly dense concrete if you've got decent cinder blocks and you're not really going to accomplish anything that makes it a little more work with the black plastic okay well i if i were going to do anything i'd think about getting myself some uh you know maybe 30 inch long pieces of rebar uh, gosh, I miss the old-fashioned lumber yards like Bergman's up in Bernie because I could go in and get a 20-foot piece of rebar and either cut it myself or get them with that big old cutter they've got to cut it into, you know, three-foot pieces for me because you're going to I want to anchor at least the corners and perhaps some places up and down. But uh, if I were going to spend any extra time and labor, I would be doing that rather than... Uh, uh, than, than trying to put black plastic in there, because I don't want you to waste the space where those cinder blocks are. I want you to fill those cinder blocks with soil, just like you fill the inside of the bed, and you would be amazed, you know, that little 5 by 5 inch opening or 6 by 6 inch opening in the top of the cinder block, you know, that's big enough for a pepper plant, a couple of bush beans, uh, you could plant something trailing, in there, uh, some sort of herb like thyme or rosemary or oregano. Um, I think when uh, John gets through with his bed, I'm going to have you know plenty of edges in the middle of it. But hey, that outer six inches where the cinder block is, that's going to be growing something too for me. And if you put the black plastic in there, it'd be sort of self-defeating because you're going to be watering the edges of it just like you are the middle. Okay. Well, I just I just thought um, my soil might be drying out pretty quick if I didn't do that i've I've seen actually the dirt in the center blocks like that and people growing stuff in them but uh just seemed like they would dry out a lot quicker not not so much here 90 percent of the of the water that you put into the soil is not lost to evaporation in fact probably 95 percent most all that water is taken up through the plants released out through the leaves in the form of what we call transpiration. So you're not gaining a whole lot. Um, Even if you are wicking some moisture away, it's minuscule compared to what the plants are taking up and releasing on their own. So uh, um, I I just don't think it's worth the effort. I don't think you'd accomplish a lot. You'd spend some money and you'd spend time, and I can think of better things to do with both of those uh, commodities. (laughs) That seems like I waste a lot of time out there anyway. But, but <laughs> no, you age, put it. You know, I've, got, I've got time to waste. Uh, lucky you. <laughs> if you run out of things to do, I, I can sign you up for some more good projects. 
<laughs> no, I'll fill it up. I just... It just seems I'm wasting a lot of it. No, but, it's uh, you know, it, it's all going to work out well for you in the future, John. Call me when you have more questions. I look forward to helping you get started. And uh, I'll remind you, we have scheduled our vegetable garden seminar for the fall. It'll be the last Saturday of September. I don't remember the calendar date on that, but if you're available, we have a lot of fun that Saturday morning and can uh, head off a lot of problems and save you wasting a lot of time in the future. All right. Well, I've been to the spring one a time or two, but yeah. uh, falls I've only a little, ever been to the fall one. Yeah, fall's a little different, and you can grow more in the fall than you can in the spring, so I'd love to see you. All right. Thanks, Bob. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Bye. All right. Back to gardening, and Jenny is up first. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have a question for my son. Okay. He's been solarizing a part of his garden area where he plants the 10, 15 onions. Okay. He's wanting to know how long he has to wait to stop the solarizing and what to revitalize, re-nourish the dirt with before it's time for the, the onions to be planted. Well, I hope he moistened the soil before he put the plastic down. As long as he did that, the standard time is six to eight weeks. Um, it's probably going to be October. It's going to be two and a half months, maybe even three months before uh, we're going to have the onion plants available for him to put out. And it's probably going to take no more than a month to get that soil back in really good shape. So I wouldn't be in any rush to take the plastic off. If I did anything, I probably would fold the plastic back, re-moisten the soil, and then put the plastic back in place because steam heat just kills so much better than dry heat. But uh, as to as to revitalizing the soil, so to speak, the only thing that he has really lost, and it's significant, is uh, the microbes in the soil. The earthworms just move out. The earthworms move out into the surrounding soil, pull the plastic off, soil cools down, the earthworms move right back in. And the microbes are real easy to replace. You either add a thin layer of good compost or you soak some good compost in water overnight and simply pour or spray that water over the surface of the soil, considering that bacteria, for instance, have a generation time of as little as seven minutes, um, you are going to revitalize the soil very, very quickly. So I'm certainly not going to be in a rush to pull that black plastic off. And when I do, uh, like I say, it's going to be a, a bit of compost and uh you know, or compost tea, a little bit of water on top of that. And then I'll do all the things I usually do. Put some fertilizer down, uh, put a little extra compost down in specific spots where I'm going to plant my rows of onions. But uh, uh, he's very wise to be looking that far down the road and, and getting ready to prepare. But this kind of heat, I hate to waste it. And like I say, since he's not going to be putting anything else in there, I'm going to leave that plastic on for another four to six weeks. Okay, so he won't be getting those onions to plant until around October. Right. Pull the plastic back, wet it down, and then put it back again. That's what I would do if it were mine. That's what I would do today and or put, as soon as possible. Okay, and then put a good compost on it. Well, and yeah, what, when, a, yeah, I'd, about before. September 15th, then I'm going to be taking the uh, September 15th, October 1st, okay. then I'm going to be taking the plastic off. And at that point, I'm going to put a little organic fertilizer down. I'm going to put a little compost down, water it good. And three, four weeks later, when the onion plants are available, that soil will be in fantastic shape to start planting. Okay. And 
by the organic fertilizer? Are you talking has to grow or something that's a granule? Or I, I prefer the granules. Uh, has to grow is a good Medina product. Medina also makes a granular product called Growing Green, which is outstanding. Uh, Maestro right. Grow makes one they call Texas Tea. Uh, the Nature's Creation folks make one they call Premium Lawn Food. These are all good organics. My, or the uh, folks at Espoma make one that they call Plant Tone, uh, and all of those things are, are going to be really good. I, I, use, I use Medina probably more often than anything else because it's very readily available to me, but that's not the only choice out there. Aren't we fortunate to have so many choices? Uh, you know, 20 years ago we didn't. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, yes, we are very fortunate. It's, it's kept the quality up and the price down for us. Yeah. One last question. We have a, I have a Myers lemon tree that's been in molasses tub for about seven years. Uh-huh. I've not gotten any lemons last year or this year on there. And I, I think it's only got about six inches or more, a little more of soil left in there. Could we, when that's pretty dry, gently pull that out of the molasses tub, add soil to the bottom, and then, you know, so it would build it up a little more because you're not, you know, you're always saying don't cover the... Well, and you're a very good listener. That's exactly what you need to do. I would wait for cool weather to do it. I would not be risking damaging the roots on any woody plant uh palm trees uh say cycads so it's a different story but lemon trees and things i don't want to risk root damage until the weather has cooled significantly so that's going to be a good uh, december january project oh. um is is uh, your molasses tub out where the tree gets full sun oh yes it's okay full sun. Yeah. It last year in the green not last year year before last in the greenhouse um, my grandson accidentally overlooked it, I think, when he was watering uh-huh. for me mm-hmm. because it dropped most all of the leaves and yep. everything. So I think it put it into shock. I was afraid it died, but it did come back yep. after fertilizing and stuff. So I didn't get any that year because of that. And then this year I haven't gotten any. There yep. was blooms, but then they, you know, but. I think we, it just needs some extra stuff. Well, you know? and and it's saving up its energy. We had some weather issues that kept most people from getting a good crop this year. But all things being equal, we have a potential of having an excellent crop next year. So, yeah, put it on your calendar to slip it sure. gently out of the tub, uh, put more soil underneath and back in, and you'll be all set for another three or four years. Thank you so much, Bob. We really appreciate the advice you give us. Well, it's always a pleasure, Jenny. You have a great have day. A day. Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. All right, uh, Zahn's next. Good morning, Zahn. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. That rain last night dittos, too. Oh, listen, that's uh, lucky people out around Leon Springs got that good rain, and the night before, Fredericksburg got it. So those of us in the middle are hoping that our turn will come soon. I know it will. I'm just chomping at the bit. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a couple of quick ones for sure. you. I picked up a crown of thorns at the nursery, and I'd like to know, would it be happier in a pot or in the ground and uh, full sun, or what kind of sun would it thrive in? Well, it pretty much has to be in a pot because it would suffer at 31 degrees. It has no cold hardiness whatsoever. And right. um, ideal sun would probably be at least half a day sun. Uh, if it's inside, especially during the winter months, sunniest window you have 
In the summer outside, I would put it where it gets sun in the morning, shade in the afternoon. And, of course, it's not a cactus. It is a euphorbia, believe it or not, it's first cousin to a poinsettia. And if you treat it like a succulent, if you let it get pretty dry between waterings, you'll have occasional flowering. If you treat it more like a house plant and water thoroughly whenever that soil is dry about half an inch deep, if you feed it regularly, it can stay in bloom 10, 11 months out of the year. So we're going to make it, we're going to treat it pretty much like a house plant and uh, not in a giant pot because it blooms best if its roots are slightly root bound. But, uh, uh, you know, super bright light indoors as much as you can give it outdoors. I give it morning sun, afternoon shade. I can do that on the patio easily. Perfect. Secondly, a, a trialis I picked up last year and I kept it in the pot for uh-huh. the whole year before I put it in the finally built the feature. It's pretty spindly, mm-hmm. it's healthy but spindly, leggy. Does that take well to pruning to bush it up for next year or what? Sh- any suggestions on how to? Well, I'll tell you what I do with my thrialis, and that is, um, you know, of course, water and fertilize this time of year and perhaps mulch it. Some years they freeze back some to some extent, and some years they don't freeze back. So I don't try to second-guess that part of the weather. I'm not going to do anything to it until spring. Uh, if it does freeze back partially, then I'm going to cut off the frozen part. If it doesn't freeze back, I'm going to prune it to encourage it to bush out. But I'm I'm not going to do that until I see how far back it's frozen because I might be tempted to pre- you know prune it back to two or three feet tall this time of year. Mother Nature comes along and prunes it down to 12 inches tall with a frost. So um, right. yes, it will it will lend itself very well to pruning, but um, I'd not be doing it this time of year. When I do if if and when I do prune it in the spring, how, how much can it take without shocking it? Um, again, it will depend on whether it's frozen back or not. If it has not frozen back, I always try to take off no more than 50% of the leaves at any one time. Uh, how, how spindly it is will make the difference of how much you can cut it back without taking out too high a percentage of the growth. If you say, my gosh, if I took it back, you know, 50%, I'd take every leaf off of it. I'd tell you to do it in two stages. Take half of the major limbs sure. coming up, cut them way back. When they have started to put on the new growth, I'd cut back the other half. And you'll have plenty of time for it to come back out in the spring before its normal bloom period, which will start in late spring or early summer. Awesome. Last one, I moved a large, I say large, a pretty good-sized Mediterranean palm. Is about The trunks are about four and a half foot, eight yeah, inches. that's a fair-sized med palm, yeah. It was a double trunk, and uh, I built a feature for it and put it in. It's been there about three or four weeks. All the tips, the little leaves are about half inch or brown. I expected that from the root damage. Mm-hmm. The leaves on the on the on the palm side are bright green. The back sides look healthy. I've been watering that every other day just because of the heat is in full sun to sure. encourage some kind of root growth. But the trunk, it, does it benefit from from watering it like you do a woody plant? No, it does not. That's a great question because the trunk on a palm is totally different than a woody plant. If you look from outside in on a woody plant, you've got bark, you've got phloem, you've got um, cambium, and then you've got xylem in the middle. And you're absorbing a lot through that bark and into that uh, phloem layer. 
and uh, the plant really does well from that. When you look at the cross-section of a palm trunk, you've got a big fibrous mass, and your xylem, your phloem, your cambium are contained in little individual um, straw-like structures within the stem. We call them vascular bundles. And right. so a palm is not going to absorb the moisture from the outside in nearly so much. Now, um, if you... And remember, yeah, you know, right. water doesn't kill anything. Lack of oxygen kills things. And so long as uh, the soil is draining well enough around oh, yeah. that palm... Watering every day is probably a good idea. If you feel like you're keeping the soil too wet, which means wet enough that it's forcing oxygen out of the soil, that's too wet and you need to back off on your watering. You'll certainly need to do that when it cools down, but, you know, who knows when that's going to happen. So uh, I think it sounds to me like everything is totally normal, and I, I, that kind of also will explain to you why a palm uh, and a cycad, like a sago palm, has very much the same structure, but why you can get away with piling the the soil up around the trunk. We were digging up a uh, dwarf sayball. Uh, my business partner wanted one for her mom's yard years ago, and her she's got about a thousand feet of river frontage on the Guadalupe River with uh, those sayballs all up and down it. We dug down a good three feet before we found even the first roots on that tree, and yet it was a healthy, thriving palm tree. But understanding the difference in the physical structure of the trunk, you can understand why with a palm or a sago, you don't have to worry about it burying it too deeply, whereas on an oak tree or an elm tree or a mountain laurel, that can be the difference in life and death for the tree. So uh, you've done a good thing. I think everything's going along normally, and... Uh, you know, just keep up what you're doing. Uh, remember with watering, there's no such thing as too much. There's just too often. So feel that soil, and as long as you feel like the soil is draining well and there's still plenty of oxygen in the soil, keep on watering. You want to get as much root growth on it as you can before the really chilly soil comes around. Yeah, that was my, that was my goal. I, I knew about the uh, I buried it a little deeper than I would it mm-hmm. account before I staked it. Yeah, and uh, I've just been watering it every other day in this heat, just to, and it drains very well. The soil, uh, uh, anyway, I think it's going to be okay. I just wanted to check and see if the um, watering the trunks would benefit it. No, any, just not to, not going to do that much okay. for it. Uh, I guess spraying over the leaves may cool them down a little bit, may mm-hmm. reduce that transpirational loss just a little bit, but it's. Uh, same time you just build up the calcium on the leaves and things so if it were mine i'd i keep the water on the soil and not worry about it but it would be concerned if i sprayed some of it over the top it's just not going to accomplish a lot for you thank you bob you have a great day appreciate you do the same son it's always good to talk i sure do thanks for the call all right back to gardening it's going to be kevin eric darla and diane good morning kevin Hey, Bob, how are you? i got a couple of questions for Good. you. Good. Yes, sir. Um, I've got a place just around the corner from you up in Pipe Creek. Okay. And um, I've got a, a lovely, big, huge rock house that's got a lot of dead, dry grass, uh, except for the courtyard that we've watered heavily, and I've got a bumper crop of, of, of stickers. Okay. And uh, I've tried putting a bunch of uh, some of the organic stuff I think I got from you, all the... It smells like hell, but it works like the same. <laughs> Probably and, uh, a good fertilizer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
What do you suggest I can try to get rid of these these sticker burrs? Well, recognize that the sticker burrs are going to die totally this winter. Um, so we what it and and so many of the burrs are already formed, and by watering regularly, you've given that opportunity to form a lot of burrs, which are the seeds for next year. If it were me, because I have a surplus of burlap bags. I would, you know, be dragging one of those around that courtyard area. I would be collecting as many of the burrs as possible. And when things, you know, get more moist, we're out of the burn ban, things like that, I just throw that burlap on a, you know, on one of my brush piles and burn it up. The important thing for you to do is sometime this fall, October, November, December, put about half an inch of compost over that area compost has and you can probably get it from stone and soil depot um, or somewhere like that but it is the best natural pre-emergent herbicide i had an area uh probably three times the size of your courtyard that we use for a croquet court the sticker burr is so thick i mean the dogs wouldn't walk into it i wouldn't walk into it in the middle of the fall i put half an inch compost over the top the next summer i probably pull three grass burrs the entire season so wow. yeah don't don't waste your money on sprays or pre-emergence of any sorts. Pre-emergence, of course, don't kill the seeds. They keep the little seedling from forming a root system when it starts to grow. But considering that the grass burrs can sprout anywhere from, you know, March through September and still make a crop, you'd be putting out pre-emergence, natural or chemical, either one. You'd have to put them out four or five times during the summer, and that's a whole lot more money than your compost is going to be, and your compost is going to do a whole lot of other good things for you. So, uh, it you know, between now and then, I would collect as many of the burrs, whether it's through a bagger on your mower, or like I say, I'd just drag some burlap through there and uh, just pick up everything you can, pile it somewhere to burn when it uh, is possible to do that, put your compost down, and I think next year is going to be a whole different story for you. Yeah, we're, we're mowing frequently. And we we are using a grass catcher. That, yeah. that burlap bag idea is a great idea. We'll look at that. Yeah, the damn little um, burrs. What they do when you start, you know, cutting the top back, they just kind of flatten out, and they start making the burrs at ground level. So mowing and collecting is great, but it's sure not the total answer. Okay. Well, we'll do the compost thing. Uh, last question is: I, Last year, I bought a bunch of uh, a winter rye from you, and it was just turned out beautiful i had the most beautiful green lush lawn uh-huh. um, in my house in san antonio uh really beautiful when is the right time my memory is a little short i can't remember when i bought it and when's the best time to apply it generally speaking we put the seed down uh late october early november um the okay. seed is likely to be in short supply that playmate blend which is what we think is best one on the market is always in limited quantities. I think it's probably going to be available around the middle of September. So I would go ahead and get your seat at any point, and then we just kind of watch the weather when the nights start getting cool. Uh, we can put it out and water it, and as you discovered, you've got a green lawn almost overnight. Great. Well, we had almost four tents last night up at the place. Well, good so, for uh, you. I'm yeah. happy for you. I, I had two 100s, but, you know, my turn's coming. My old buddy Austin Graham used to always say, every day we're one day closer to that next good rain. Right. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure, Kevin. Have a great Sunday. Right. We'll talk again. And uh, it is Eric's turn. Good morning, Eric. 
Good morning, Bob. Yeah, we've missed it, too. I keep watching all the storms go around us. I think it's that the famous Windale umbrella. <laughs> the same one that's over Bernie. Exactly. Hey, got a couple quick questions for you. Is Are red buds susceptible to bores or any any other girdling type insect? Any tree out there, any woody tree, is a potential target for borers, and most trees are going to have some borers in them. Um, a young tree is so vigorous in its growth that the borer is probably not going to cause any problem. An older tree or a stressed tree, borers can significantly shorten the life of it. So, yes, uh, red buds are not as susceptible to borers, a real softwood tree like an Arizona ash, but uh, they certainly are somewhat susceptible. And then when you have a super wet spring like we had this spring, redbuds hated this spring. I mean, they, they like it dry. So your tree's got a little stressed. You may have a few more borers than usual. Uh, they're not normally life-threatening, but you can kill out well, there are a couple of different kinds of borers. One of them goes real deep into the wood in the tree, and they really don't do much damage. The flathead borer that is just underneath the bark is the one that does the most damage. And by spraying the trunk of any tree with fairly concentrated orange oil, you can kill the borers underneath the bark without significantly damaging the tree. How concentrated? I mean, it was just a one-to-one? Yeah, probably one-to-one one would be about right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we were real surprised that there, we've had a, a a red bud that hasn't. It's never really shot off, and it's been. I guess it's probably been six years, and it's and it's stayed in that five or six foot range, and it got transplanted when we built the barn doe, and it seemed to be doing well. And then when this big wind came by the other day, it was almost like a wind shear. Yeah. It, it fell right over and broke in half. Oh wow! And I looked inside. And it looked like it had just been eaten up on the inside, and, yeah. and one whole side of the, the bark was gone. And sure. So my other question is, um, in the spring, I bought a Joey avocado uh-huh. and, and planted it, you know, sanitized the, the soil with the hydrogen peroxide and, and did all those things. Do, do avocados like moist soil? Do they like dry soil? or They like they- they like what we call evenly moist. You know, when you first plant, you'll have to water a little more often. And they, you know, the first year, they really appreciate it if you spray down the trunk and the leaves. But once established, they would rather be a little dry than too wet. So, as always, there's no such thing as too much water. But let them get dry at least an inch deep before you water again. Uh, this joey is in the ground now, right? Yes. Yeah, not yes, in a pot. Is. Yeah, just uh, let that soil dry out, you know, maybe two knuckles deep, then water thoroughly again, and it should do very well for you. Okay. Well, what has surprised me about it, and, and I planted some some uh, citrus at the same time, and they seem to be hanging in there doing doing okay with the, this extreme dryness that we're having, but right. the, the joey has lost every single leaf. Mm. Now, I can't tell whether or not because it still feels like it's, it's flexible. Yeah. But every single leaf is gone. Well, I would very definitely be hitting it with some Super Thrive, and I until I get some leaves back on it, I would daily be spraying that so it will absorb uh, some moisture directly through the bark. Uh, okay. At some point, it's gotten some root damage that it dropped that many leaves, so we need to be sure it stays hydrated, sort of an 
IV fluids kind of thing until it uh, gets its roots reestablished where it can take up its own moisture. Okay, okay. And then the last question is you had mentioned about the sticker burrs and the burlap. Where do you get burlap? You, you know, you used to see it all the time, but now I just don't see it at all. Ask a feed store. Um, they probably will have uh, burlap. I know in our business, in the nursery business, we get shipped to us a lot of our fragile pots and, uh, and concrete pottery and our stone pottery and things like that comes in burlap and we get a big shipment we have you know we get 100 150 burlap bags which we put out and give away to anybody that wants them i think right now we're out of them but uh whenever you're in san antonio call and see if we've got some to give you otherwise check with your neighborhood feed store and they probably will have them for you i appreciate it as always bob you have a blessed sunday thank you 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 do the same eric thank you sir All right, let's get straight back to the phone lines, and uh, Darla is up first. Good morning, Darla. Good morning, Bob. Morning. Well, before I ask my question, I have to brag a little bit. After a summer of drought and terribly high temperatures, yesterday, just north of Freer, we had a a two-and-a-half-hour downpour and got (laughs) five-and-a-half inches. Oh, wow. Well, you you deserve it. Now, you don't be greedy and let some of the rest of us have some next time. There you go. Well, we've been, it's been going around us. I heard Mark yesterday call and say they got four and a half up there somewhere in the hill country. And I was so jealous and I couldn't believe anybody (laughs) could get four and a half and then we got five and a half. Oh, good for you. Uh, Good for you. The question I have is about South Texas plant and soil labs. Mm -hmm. I've heard you recommend them so many times down in Brownsville. Do they just do soil samples or do they also do water samples? I don't believe they do water sampling. They do soil testing. They do what's called petiole testing. Uh, and actually, they're up the way from Brownsville. They're in the valley, but they're actually in the Harlingen area. Um, uh-huh. But do you uh, happen to have you happen to have their phone number? The old number I have is no good anymore. I don't have it in front of me. Um, but uh, while I'm looking for it, uh, let me suggest that you either call a well driller in your area. Or um, call your local groundwater district. Both of those people will know where you can get soil or get water tested uh, at a very you know reasonable price. Uh huh. Well, a friend of mine is wanting to have some tested, and she was going to send it to A and M, and I thought, oh no, no, no. They they tell you what's in the soil. Texas Plant and Soils Labs tells you what is. Uh, what is in that soil that uh, is available to your plants? Do you have a pencil? Uh, yes, I do. Their phone number is area code 956-383-0739. Uh, if he's in, ask for Noe Garcia. I'm sure anybody can help you, but Noe's the guy that I always talk to. So uh, um, I, they'll be, they're the best in the business. Okay, great. Well, that's exactly what I needed. Y'all have a great day and a good weekend. Thank you so much, and you do the same, and congratulations on your good rain. <laughs> oh, man, I tell you, we we just can't believe it. We well, enjoy it. It may be a while for the next one, Darla. Let, yeah. me, uh, let me get started with Diane. Diane, will hold through the news if we need to. What's going on today? Okay, Bob, I got two questions. I'll do the easy one first. Okay. I bought some... Um, Wendy's dream from y'all? I yeah, Wendy's that. wish. 
Wendy's Wish. Wish. That's it. Yeah. Okay. I have it in a container, but I want to move it into a big container that's too big for me to move in the winter. Will <laughs> it, if I cover it, will it do okay? How cold is it going to get? <laughs> well, that's what, I mean, That my next half of that question is if I spray it with the seaweed molasses. That's going to help. Um, covering it's going to take you down into the mid-20s. If it gets colder than that, you can probably put a, you know, big incandescent light bulb underneath the cover to generate some heat. Uh, you can almost certainly get it through the winter. At the very least, you could take some cuttings off of it in October and have some little plants in the kitchen window through the winter to replant if we get a brutal winter. But uh, I'm pretty sure that you're going to make it through just uh, insulate and, like I say, maybe a little bit of supplemental warmth, but we'll just have to watch the weather and see. Okay, and that uh, recipe, it's two tablespoons of molasses and one tablespoon of liquid seaweed. Other way around. Two two, uh, seaweed, one molasses. And Lloyd's up first. Good morning, Lloyd. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'd be doing better if it was 55 degrees like it was was two (laughs) days ago when I was in Portland. But uh, this is Texas. It's good to be home even if it is hot. Well, we're glad to have you back in Texas. Thank you. A um, couple of questions here. Someone had given us a bur oak, mm-hmm. and uh, it's about four feet tall in pot, of course. And I wanted to get your recommendation. Is it a recommended oak for oh, this area? It's an excellent oak for this area. It's in the white oak group, so it's not bothered by oak wilt. Moderate in its growth rate. If there's any negative to a bur oak, it makes uh, acorns that are almost as big as a golf ball, so you do not want to sit underneath it uh, in the fall when those acorns are coming down. But if it's four feet tall now, it's going to be a little while before you have to worry about that. But, no, it's a great tree for this area. It's a long, live tree, probably going to get about 50 to 60 feet tall and 30, 40 feet wide, so we'll give it plenty of room. Well, and we had unloaded this uh, this tree. I just got out of the hospital, and uh, it wasn't supposed to lift anything at the time. We live in Timberwood Park, you know right. where all the deer are, and uh, I turned around twice, and the deer had eaten every leaf off of this yep. oak tree. Um, so would you recommend not planting it where where deer are? Well, you just uh, need to protect it. I mean, uh, it just once it gets up a little size to it, uh, the leaves will be up above where the deer can reach, but you just, in effect, need to build yourself a cage to put around it, whether you make it out of concrete reinforcing wire or fence wire or cattle panels or whatever. Uh, my business partner recently planted a good bur oak and uh, just put you know electric fencing around it to keep the deer as well as cows away from it because especially right now, as dry as it is, the deer are hungry and they're eating all kinds of vegetation and uh, your bur oak was just a good target. But um, it's, you know, again, it, you're going to have to protect it for a couple of years till it gets up to a bigger size, but that's a whole lot better than letting the deer rule your life for you. Definitely. One quick question too. I've always heard, and, and I've heard you say this too, and my experience has been the same. If you have a, uh, a potted plant and you want to, uh, put it into another, a larger pot, don't get the don't make the pot too large. Correct. And, and what is the reason for that? I, I'm thinking, well, if you took that same plant and put it in the ground, um, you definitely have a big pot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. Uh, bigger pots don't dry out evenly. 
the bigger the pot is, I mean, if the pot is full of roots, most of that moisture is actually being taken up by the roots and lost out through the leaves in the form of transpiration. When you put a little bitty plant in a great big pot, it tends to stay too wet because all of the outer soil is not, you know, allowing the plant to transpire the moisture out. In the ground, that water's got a lot of other places to go. You have a lot of the things that are naturally aerifying the soil. You don't have that in a pot. So uh, if you're now, you know, if you were planting, let's say we're planting bedding plants into a great big pot, that's fine because we're going to put 7, 10, 15 bedding plants in that pot. We're going to have it quickly filled out with roots. But um, the, the ground is uh, a very different growing environment than a pot is. So that's the reasoning behind it. That makes sense, Bob. And I appreciate it today. You have a, a wonderful weekend. You do the same. Always good to talk to you, Lloyd. Thank you, sir. Uh, next up is Joyce. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Bob. Well, I hear that voice, and Hannah and Maya say thank you very, very much. As to all the employees of Shades of Green, we returned from Portland to see that you had paid a visit in our absence, and uh, everybody appreciated it. My, how sweet. I I bought one of those, among other things, one of those darling little periwinkles, the, uh-huh. the dwarf one. Yeah. Those are the cutest plants. And they just, they bloom so profusely. They make such a great, just little miniature flower garden. We We first saw those, first year they were out was, I believe, two years ago. One of the growers gave Roberta a four-inch pot. She put it in about an eight-inch bowl, and that thing must have had 30 to 50 flowers at a time open on it. And, uh, yeah, I, I love the little. They're called soiree. Uh, nowadays, when they first came out, it was just the white with the pink center. Now there's a white, a pink, a sort of salmony one, and um, a really dark pink one. And uh, I'm with you. I, I love that new little periwinkle. I love periwinkles in general, but these things seem to be... Very prolific with her flowers, very phytophthora-resistant, and um, don't take up a whole lot of room. So they've got a lot of things going for them. Well, that leads to a question I hadn't even thought about. It's in a six-inch pot. Uh-huh. I'm going to keep it in a pot and stood in it and then stand the pot in a, a planter thing. Sure. But would you suggest putting it in a larger pot, maybe an eight-inch pot? Would that help? <sighs> maybe um, six to eight weeks from now. Um, that plant uh, probably started out as one or two four-inch pots. It has not been in that six-inch pot that long, so okay. there's no reason to move it up. But uh, yeah, as well, we get kind of what I thought, yeah, long toward Halloween, sure. If you want to go in a little bit bigger pot, it'll be easier to maintain through the winter. Yeah, because I'm going to try. I always try. <laughs> always. <laughs> sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Welcome to life. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and. I have two questions, but one of your other earlier callers, the one who was talking about putting two cinder blocks deep for a garden. Yes. And I know you can plant in the holes of the cinder block, but did I hear you say that you could plant three bush beans in one of those squares? I would. Bush beans, you know, they you have to water regularly, but consider that that plant now has uh, 360 degrees around it to grow, and so what you're going to end up with three fairly one-sided plants and the resulting mass of them is probably going to be 12 or 18 inches across you certainly can't plant three in every adjacent little opening oh no yeah. but uh yeah it's <laughs> you've got room there and you know your of course your cinder blocks are offset 
but those little bush beans can put the roots all the way down to the ground and yeah. further down in if they want to. So, yeah, it's... Well, uh, actually, actually, the question, I, mine wasn't a cinder block, but I just bought a package and was going to see if I could maybe get a, a little crop in a container, mm-hmm. and I have like 12 and 15-inch containers, but I was only going to put three plants in one of those. And when you said that size, that made me think, well, maybe I can step up the mount if it's cared for. I mean, it's going to be watered twice, whatever. I Your bigger pot, maybe I would put four seeds in, one in the center and three around it. But uh-huh. remember that when you've got that, that, that wall of cinder blocks up three feet off the ground, those plants are not going to be crowded by anything around them. If you were to put more than that in, say, a 12-inch pot, the little plants are going to crowd each other because the ones toward the middle that are trying to grow outwards are going to run into another bush bean. Okay. So even in the bigger pot, uh, three, four, five seeds would be the max I would do. Okay, that's fine. Now to my actual question. And that was, uh, lately on your show, the, the idea of the has-to-grow lawn food has come up a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And each time you were quite clear that that's a lawn food and don't use it for planting. I mean, I have the right. plant food. But my question is, some years ago, ago I had bought one and, and stuck it away, and then you said, don't use it for lawn. I really don't have lawn, and I still have it. You never mention, and I guess on purpose, if you can dilute it sufficiently to at least use it somewhere. You can dilute it sufficiently to put on the ground, and I probably should be more clear about that. I ran into problems when I applied it as a foliar spray. Okay. <laughs> and I burned some things pretty significantly. Well, it's higher in, yeah. Uh, very much higher in nitrogen. If you cut the dilution by 50%, if, you know, you put twice as much water with a given amount as is recommended, you would probably be fine on most things. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Mr. Frankie, who owns the company, and I were talking about this just 10 days ago, and uh, he's got some, you know, he deals with everybody from little guys like you and me to these big, big commercial operations. And he uh, was working with a bunch of people growing things hydroponically, I believe lettuce cultivation. And they were finding that for their nutrient solution mix, they were mixing half and half, has to grow plant, has to grow lawn. We didn't really talk that much about the dilution beyond that. But, yeah, as long as you're not spraying it on the foliage, as long as you're diluting it down even more, I, it'd be safe to use on just about anything. Do you think maybe a, a teaspoon per gallon or maybe one tablespoon per gallon? I'd be looking at a teaspoon per gallon. Okay. That was my thought, too. And, and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to see because I thought maybe there was something else since, as I no. say, you were not discussing dilution at all. No. It just, uh, um, I, you know, for most people who are not going to think it through that are just simply going to go by the instructions on yeah. the bottle, the yeah. point is those instructions are for the lawn, yeah. and they don't, um, uh, you know, again, it's for most people, it's just safer to get the has-to-grow plant. But if you already have yeah. the has-to-grow lawn, so long as you dilute it down, and so long as it is a soil application rather than a foliar application, you'll be just fine. Understood. That's fine. Now, last question. You mentioned that Roberta... Are you just in passing something that she was growing oxalis? Now I like oxalis. Mm-hmm. I have the purple one, right? And I have the pink one, and I just ordered 
what they call candy cane oxalis. Okay. When they came, they're little itty-bitty bulbs. Uh-huh. And I haven't planted them yet. I was going to plant them in a pot and then in a small pot and then sink the small pot in a bigger pot so I couldn't lose them. But do you have, are you familiar with it or do you have any suggestions? There are so many of the oxalis. I would go ahead and use whatever size pot you want and definitely multiple little bulbs per pot. Uh, she actually, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, she has hers probably in a 14-inch pot, and she must have 15, you know, little bulbs in there. Probably didn't plant that many to begin with, but after a couple of years, yeah. oxalis tend to make more and more of those little bulbs. And they are one plant that doesn't really crowd itself, and I think it's a whole lot prettier with multiple plants in a single pot. One yeah. little oxalis plant does not make a very big show. No, I understand that, but I, I was also surprised because I thought when it, what the pink oxalis that I have mm-hmm. looked like more of a rhizome with little bottle cappy things uh, on the rhizome, and these are actually little little bulb things. I, mean, I think bulbs. even with your pinky one, if you really took it out, you'd see it's a bunch of little bulblets, as it were, just okay. very close together. Okay. All righty. That's fine. Well, that's good because I, I like the oxalis. In fact, I like the wild ones. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just they become so susceptible to spider mites and other things in late summer. And the ones that are, you know, planted wild, they just die back and totally go away. But in a pot, if you'd like to maintain them longer, if you'd like them, many of them will flower almost constantly under pot culture. But uh, it can be real hard to keep the pests off of them in late summer. And I have to say that we're finding that that spinosad soap uh, is doing a real good job of stopping the mites and the other things like to get on it. So uh, that'll be worth keeping in mind as we when we're in hot, dry weather and Yoxalis is trying to grow. Okay. Well, thank you, Bob. I won't keep you. Does Hannah like cranberry and chicken? Oh, she. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tend to take the treats and break them in half uh, because they they get as much satisfaction from a little treat as a big treat. And a girl has to watch her figure, you know. And Hannah oh, and Maya absolutely. both, uh, um, that we we turn big treats into little treats, and they do absolutely love them. Well, I told I told one of the folks to tell you I take those and they cut very easily yeah, with uh-huh. a scissor. I cut them into thirds, yeah. and that makes them little tiny treats. <laughs> and they can have more. <laughs> That's a great way to do it. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Joyce. Appreciate Bye. you so much. Bye. Good morning, John. Good morning. Morning, sir. Um, I had a question about some tomatoes that I bought at a nursery about five days ago. I, I, I bought about 35 different plants, planted them all that day. Uh, they all looked, they were all healthy looking. Um, about 10 of them were of the Phoenix variety. Uh-huh. And, and shortly after I planted them, they started, their leaves started to curl and, uh, and, and now they're starting to kind of turn yellow. It's been five days and it's still kind of, you know, they, they haven't come out of it. Whereas all the rest of the plants have. And they're on different rows, and I was doing some research, and I kind of uh, suspected maybe the, there's a leaf curling virus, and I wanted to get your thoughts on, on that. So. Well, you know, it sounds like it's something specific to that particular variety, but I, the leaf curl doesn't show up that quickly. I mean, if they had had it uh, when you got them, they should have already been showing some symptoms of it. 
Phoenix is, that's just not a, that's not one of my favorites, so I can't say that I've grown a lot of it. My suspicion is more that perhaps the day before you got them, they may have been uh, over-fertilized, they may have gone through, you know, some kind of shock that took a few days to show up. Uh, did you put did you put fertilizer in the soil before you planted? Did you how did you go about preparing the soil for planting? I I put uh, a little um, oyster shell in, a little wood ash, uh, regular dirt, and then I put some compost on top of that with some leaves. Okay. On 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 top of that. Yeah, it's interesting that it would have only affected the Phoenix variety. That's why my suspicion is something happened, you know, before you got the plants. Um, if that nursery is in your neighborhood, I'd probably sneak back in there and see if they have any more of the Phoenix, you know, out of the same batch that you bought and see what theirs are doing. If theirs are yellowing and looking bad, then I would say, hey, I don't know what's going wrong with your plants, but mine are doing the same thing. Uh, I need to get some uh, replacement plants. What are you going to give me? And um, but uh, again, I you'd only really be able to do that if you see the same thing going on with the plants at the nursery. But I really don't think it's anything that you are doing or have done. I probably would play spray the plants uh, foliar spray with a little bit of uh, perhaps Super Thrive, maybe a little bit of liquid seaweed, a little bit of Garrett juice, and see if you can get them to come out of it. Because, uh, like I say, I'm really not sure what caused it. But I, if your other plants all look good and these are the only ones that have a problem, I think it's a problem before you got the plants. I, I will say that there were some other Phoenix, there were some stressed uh, tomato plants there that were yellow and curled up. Yep. I mean, it's been hot. And so, so anyway, I've, ta- I've already talked to them about it, and they're getting some more in. They, they said they, if it's still a problem, they would make it good. If it, if it, if it were something like that virus, would would i need to remove those plants and not plant back in that same place well if it if it were that virus uh you would very definitely need to replace them you could plant back in the same place because viral diseases don't stay in the soil they're normally spread by small insects uh, and things like thrips and there would be there's no reason though that they would only hit the phoenix uh it would you'd see it in your other plants right. it just does not sound like a virus to me and i've seen plenty of viruses okay. in tomatoes all right well thank you i appreciate that and you call me and let me know how it turns out yes sir you have a great day you too john thank you sir all right uh james is up next good morning james Morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing well. You know, it's so much funny. I'm looking here, and of course, on my screen, all I have is the name, and I always think, which John is this? Which James is this? And when it turns out to be you, I'm always happy to hear from you. So, how's everything in your world? Oh, just great. We got a rain last night. Oh man, it's all around. <laughs> and you got how much? Well, probably quarter inch. It wasn't much rain, but it cooled down uh, everything real oh, nice. Oh, yeah. It was a beautiful evening. But, uh, well, that's a good start. That's ten times more than I got. But, you know, next time around, um, maybe you'll get more, and I will, too. We're just yeah, happy for every. Year we rained out those dub hunters, and I'm hoping for another year <laughs> just like last year. Uh, that's the years that I lived up in Dallas, and you know, hunted doves down on my grandfather's farm, and it was always water hole shooting. And, you know, we, we hated to see the rain then, and I'm like you. Nowadays, I love seeing that rain. Yes, sir. Um, I was listening to your program, and uh, you're talking about pot even up 
plants. Uh-huh. And for what it's worth, uh, Professor Whitcomb, uh, I'm a student of his. Of course. Um, recommends he has a four-inch rule with the root maker equipment. Uh-huh. When, when you're potting up, uh, you go four inches mm-hmm. from the size of the uh, pot that you're, go- you're using to the, the new pot, four inches sure. to the rim. Right. And that's what he's recommended. Well, and most everything that Carl grows uh, is a woody plant of one sort or another, whether it's a grape myrtle or whether it's a maple or whatever. And I would agree 100 percent. I mean, he is the master when it comes to doing a lot of things like that. You know, really herbaceous things and things that grow really quickly, like a tomato plant or something like that. I'm probably going to exceed that four-inch rule a bit. But on anything woody, I think that's probably a very, very good idea. Yeah, for what it's worth, that's what uh, what he's teaching us. Yeah. Um, so you add four on one side and four on the other side. And sure. You have four inches all the way around okay. which is the about the exactly what going from a five gallon to a 15 gallon or going from a one gallon to yeah. a five gallon is going to be yeah uh the reason i called uh i'm doing one hackberry a day um on this one not fence well it was an old fence line mm-hmm. and they're uh three four four inch uh diameter and i'm cutting them down low i'm taking the uh Portable, uh, the, the the drill that everybody has, the right. battery drill. Yeah, yeah. And I'm drilling just uh, maybe three, I don't know, five eighths, three quarters, I don't know what size it is, <laughs> uh, holes down in that uh, cut stump, uh-huh. and then put the molasses and um, diesel on there. It seems to hold uh, the diesel a little bit longer in those holes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's beneficial to, for the kill. Or not. I think it probably is. And quite frankly, I might use diesel alone and then go back and add the molasses, you know, a short time later because the only purpose for the molasses is to clean up the diesel. You're not making the diesel more effective. Uh, you're not making it kill better or anything else. I just want that diesel cleaned up as soon as possible after it's done its job. So, um, and considering that they're hard to mix together, I'm getting to where I do it more as two applications instead of one. And uh, if it's convenient for you to do it at the same time, by all means, go for it. But uh, if you, you know, if you do your diesel one day and you do your molasses uh, two weeks later, I think you're accomplishing the same thing. The the, the diesel mix is it fills up the holes, uh-huh. but if you go back later um there's not much of that left in those holes right. I, I think it it's absorbed down into the root system which is what you're looking for is what you're looking for okay uh, i guess i'm going in the right direction then. I, i'll uh, i'll just do the diesel and then uh, mix up my molasses a couple of days later i think that'd be a real good thing to do and if you get delayed by that four inch rain that comes along <laughs> you can do it a week later i'm going to be doing some experimenting one of the interesting things we learned up in oregon last week uh there's a new company out there i think it's called earth's ally that is doing a combination of vinegar and sea salt and claiming that they are getting extremely good results and though i find it hard to believe they say they're getting very little 
sodium accumulation. I guess they're probably using a small amount, but I may be trying some of that on those hackberries and seeing how that works, uh, you know, sometime in the not-too-distant future when I get a chance to try it. But I think you're doing fine with what you're doing, and I'll certainly keep you advised if I find any other options to get the hackberries under control. Well, if you guys are worried about uh, salt buildup, uh, your buddy uh, Stuart Frankie's got yeah. that all figured out, and he's got a lot of products. For oh, you. yeah, and, uh, you know, that's they've taken old uh, drilling sites, oil well sites, things like that, that have been just sterile for 10 years, and the company's saying they're probably going to stay sterile for 50 years, and, you know, less than a year later, he's got them looking, maybe not like the Garden of Eden, but certainly plenty of vegetation. So, yeah, sodium... Uh, Sodium's easier to deal with than hackberries. It's a lot easier to get rid of. Okay, I'm going in the right direction with the uh, with the holes. You though. certainly are. You certainly okay. are. And if you get after any bigger trees, I just increase the number of holes. That's I've got. I think that bit's 18 inches long. So I, I'm not scared. <laughs> Very good. Well, Thanks, James, Bob. have a great Sunday. It's good to hear from you. It's good. Good to talk with you, Bob. Thank, Thank you. you, sir. Bye. All right, one line open, grab it if you like, 210-599-5555, going to be Herb, Michael, and Colin, and Herb's up first. Good morning, Herb. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I told my wife you'd have the answer to this question. I've got a number of crepe myrtles in my yard, mid-size and large size. I've had them 12, 15 years, but this year I've noticed on my mid-sized crepe myrtles, I'm getting like a black mildew mm-hmm. on the leaves and the bark. Yep. And this you, is something you can rub off with your 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 thumb. You've got you've got some aphids on there, Herb, and the aphids make a sugary excretion, poop, whatever you want to call it, and then the black mold grows on that sugary stuff. You may see some ants and things running up and down the bark too, because they like the eat that it's um you know it's just a it's just a sugar is what it is and you get rid of the aphids and the black mold will gradually go away of course it's all gonna go when the leaves fall off this fall anyway but uh crepe myrtles especially when they're a little bit drought stressed which every crepe myrtle in town has been this summer um we get a little drought stress you get aphids and then from the aphids you get the black mold so not a big deal wash it off if you like if you want to go after the aphids, the spinosad soap is what we use, either early or late, not during the hot, sunny part of the day. But uh, it'll knock the aphids out. You could release some ladybugs. Lots of ways with dealing with the aphids. But the black mold, is uh, it's, it's a result of the aphids, not anything going wrong with your tree. Okay. Well, I was right. I knew you'd have the answer. (laughs) Well, that's not the first time I've uh, answered that question, and I'm sure it won't be the last, so I'm sure glad you called. All right. You have a good day, Bob. You do the same, sir. Thank you. Bye. All right. Uh, Actually, Michael, Colin, and Burns, and that fourth line's already ringing again, but I know it's Michael's turn. Good morning, Michael. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. um... I'm still looking for a tree to grow out here in New Braunfels. I called last week, okay. and I think I wanted. I think we kind of changed it over to uh, wanting a peach tree. Okay. And like I say, we're out here in New Braunfels, east of I-35, and we you don't have to pollinate a peach tree, do you? Yes, you. Well, you don't have to hand pollinate it, 
but you really need two trees. So uh, you'll have room, since peach trees only grow a third as big as a shade tree, you'll probably have room for two trees. What you want to be real sure of, and your uh, New Braunfels area, a little north, a little south, where specifically are you? Uh, we're on the east side of uh, New Braunfels, okay. uh, to the kind of the southeast side. I would be looking for a peach tree in the chilling range somewhere between 550 and 700 hours. Peaches are very okay. specific, uh, and you have to have a certain number of hours of chilling weather, which is weather below 45, before they will bloom and set fruit. We don't want to go too okay. low or they will bloom too early and freeze back. We want to, don't want to go too high or they will never bloom. So be mm-hmm. sure that you're dealing either with the nursery that knows something about chilling hours or, you know, research it yourself. You know, yeah. I might even go as high as 750, but between 550 and 750 is what you're looking for. On the low end of mm-hmm. that scale, Sam Houston would be a good tree to look for. Midway up that scale, there's actually a tree called the John Fannick Peach. Uh, on the slightly higher end, uh, Melba and June Gold. Melba is the sweetest white-meated peach you will ever find. Uh, June okay. Gold is a clingstone, but it is a very prolific and very, very delicious peach. So uh, plan on planting okay. two trees, and it's fine to have two different varieties. I like doing that anyway because you can choose oh, okay. your you can choose your ripening times. Actually, if you had room for four or five trees. You could have peaches that started ripening in early June, and you could have the last of the peaches start to ripen in August and really spread your harvest season out. But what you want to do is uh, match up those uh, chilling hours. And uh, beyond that, okay. it's work to grow a peach yeah. tree. You've got to prune every year. <laughs> you know all about it. Yeah, I saw the the famous Texas Aggie site, and I was looking at all the, the hours and stuff like that. So uh, now I know what they mean. Okay, perfect. And looking for varieties and looking for quality trees. Um, Phoenix Nursery, southeast side of San Antonio, about 30 minutes away from you, is probably going to be your, your best source on trees. I would never mail order a fruit tree. You don't need to. Phoenix brings in hundreds, if not thousands, of trees. And those guys over there, they know quality. And uh, it's where I would go for fruit trees. I mean, even my own nursery, uh, our own nursery, we sell citrus and a handful of things like persimmons, but I'm going to go to Phoenix if I want peach trees. So I don't mind telling well, you, you know, to do I, the same. I hear you talk about those. I hear you talk about those guys a lot. Where are they? Um, they are uh, on Home Green Road. If you came down I-35 to 410, stay going south on 410. You can get off on any of those little streets like Houston all the way down to Rigsby. You go right two or three okay. blocks. You come to South W.W. W. White. Home Green runs uh, off South W.W. W. White just north of Rigsby Avenue. And uh, Home Green Run kind of dead ends into their nursery, so you can't miss it. Perfect. All right, sir. I thank you very much. Good luck with your new peach orchard. <laughs> thank you, okay. Michael. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, next up is going to be Colin. Good morning, Colin. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I've got a question on okra plants. I've got a bunch of ants on the pod uh-huh. just, just recently. What's the best way to keep those off the, well, off the flowers? Well, those are fire ants, and okra yep. is one of the things they actually eat. If you will spread on the ground around the plants dry molasses that frequently will run them off if you would like to kill them, 
um, spread some of the uh, insecticide they call come and get it. It's a bait, and uh, you don't want to really disturb the ants. Just sprinkle some of this around. I like doing it either early morning or late evening. The ants pick it up, take it back to their colony, which may not be real apparent where it is, but they take it back and feed the queen, and then everybody dies. If you want to spray something on the okra, that spinosad soap would work to kill the ants, and then just wash your okra off. It's not going to cause any problems. But, yeah, I've had fire ants on my okra the past week or so and been out of town and haven't gotten after them yet. But this afternoon, if I don't stay too late at the nursery, that's probably what I'll be doing is killing ants. And uh, I'll probably be using the spinosad soap plus spreading a little bit of the come and get it around. And you can spray that spinosad soap directly on the foliage? You can. Um, I would do it, like, say, early morning or late evening because the soap uh, can, you know, cause a little bit of phytotoxicity, a little bit of sunburn if you were to use it at 3 o'clock on a sunny afternoon. But uh, either late evening or early morning, no worries whatsoever. Very good. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. Anything else I can help you with? That's it. Thanks for taking Go, the call. Oh, it's a pleasure. Go have a good Sunday, and we'll talk again. Good morning, Burns. Yeah, hi, Bob. Um, we have uh, a uh, memorial tree that we need to plant, and okay. uh, you know we've been listening for a long, long time, and uh, I thought I would remember. And I didn't know if it was a Mexican sycamore or a bur oak, and wasn't sure. But we're looking for something that will grow pretty quickly and uh, be reasonably tall. Okay, and uh, what area are you in? Uh, we're actually in Wimberley. Okay. Um, e- there there are a number of choices. Uh, if you want a memorial tree that will live for 50 years, uh, Mexican sycamore will be the fastest growing of the bunch. If you want a memorial tree that will live for 2,000 years, uh, Montezuma cypress is a reasonable choice and fairly fast growing. Uh, somewhere in the middle, uh, you'll find things like bur oak, excellent, you know, 100-year tree, uh, the so-called Monterey oak or Mexican live oak, also, you know, probably a 100-year lifespan. Um, I love the Mexican sycamore, and for most uses, I'm going to tell you it's the best fast-growing tree out there, but it's a little more susceptible to storm damage, and it's not as long lived. So I'm going to sacrifice a little bit in growth to get a little bit more longevity and strength if it's a tree I'm planting. So my top two choices are most likely going to be a Montezuma cypress or perhaps um, a bur oak, and that's followed pretty closely by cedar elm and uh, the so-called Mexican live oak. Okay, cedar elm. Okay, so Montezuma cypress, and then the bur oak, yep. and then the cedar elm. Cedar elm, and then the so-called Mexican live oak, the uh, also known as uh, Monterey oak, Quercus polymorpha botanically. Uh, the The beauty of all of these oaks is that they're not not uh, you know badly affected by oak wilt. So okay. that's why I'm not going to recommend a, a traditional southern live oak or a red oak because I don't want your tree to grow for 10 years and then start fighting disease problems. But uh, uh, I just know the longevity on the Montezuma Cypress because Howard Garrett uh, sent me pictures when he was down in Tule, Mexico, of the uh, little bitty Montezuma Cypress in that village, which has been dated at over 2,500 years old. 
It's like oh, wow. uh, maybe 40 feet circumference around the base and about 150 feet tall. <laughs> Quite a memorial wow. tree. But, uh, you know, again, there, there are positives and negatives to every tree, but I think the ones I've suggested to you are going to be as trouble-free and long-lived as trees as you could ever plant. Okay, that's wonderful. And that last one, was that a Mexican live oak? Yes, they call it a Mexican live oak, uh, also known as a Monterey oak. Uh, but it is uh, in the white oak family instead of our, you know, same family as the uh, southern live oak, which is the native live oak. Native live oak is very susceptible to oak wilt. Um, it may not be a problem right now, but 20 years from now, maybe you've got oak wilt all around you. You would want to have a Monterey oak or Mexican live oak, whichever you want to call it, because uh, they are not going to be badly affected. Okay. Okay, Bob. That's great. Thank you for the for the tips on that. And always and remember, still readily available. Uh should be pretty readily available at any good nursery. Okay. Wonderful. Okay, Bob. Thank you very much. You're certainly welcome. Thank you. Bye. All right. Uh, let's see. Barbara's next, and then Manny and Kay. Good morning, Barbara. Hey, Bob. You're awesome. Thank you for your help. You're well, amazing. my pleasure. My pleasure. I do my favorite show. Favorite well, thank show you. on the planet. Uh, you're um, very kind. I had one question, and now I have another question. Cause some, would you mind spelling that soap you were talking about? I can't understand the word. It is used on the okra. Yeah, it is spinosad. S p i n o s a d. Thank you. It is and a it's naturally. Thing. It's a natural insecticide derived from soil bacteria. Uh, you can buy straight spinosad, but the combination of um, your insecticidal soap and spinosad into this product by a company called Natural Guard. Um, it just is it's one of the best insecticide miticides I have ever found. And you can buy it as a concentrate or you can buy it in that little hand sprayer ready to go. So uh, no mixing, no mess if you want to buy it like that. And is that okay to put on any kind of a plant? I would be careful on cacti, but it's probably safer than most other um things and like i was telling previous caller don't use it in the heat of the afternoon but golly i've used it on hibiscus which are extremely sensitive to insecticides caused absolutely no problem whatsoever and uh i've even found it's uh and, and i leave the yellow jackets and the black wasp alone those red ones that are so aggressive i tend to kill them and i find this a great wasp killer it knocks them down and does them in so uh, it's just a really impressive product. I'm told that in the near future it will be available in one of those sprayers that goes directly on the hose. But for now, I'm using the little hand sprayer um, and used it on a lot of different things and never had a problem. Thank you so much for that. Um, that ties into the question I really was going to call you about, but maybe it's already answered. I uh, live in the Leon Valley area, and at Earth Day they give beautiful little sapling trees of Mexican plum uh-huh. and red buds. Yeah. So I got one on those little bitty, bitty pots and put it in the ground. It was doing good, and something is eating all the leaves off of it, and I'm just like, what do I do? Well, there's like overnight. Yeah, the spinosad soap might be a good choice. Um, you almost have to go out with a flashlight and look. If it's a caterpillar, the spinosad would definitely take care of it. 
Um, if it's a beetle, it'd still probably be your product of choice. But in both cases, you almost have to get the spray onto it. So we've really got to figure out what's eating the leaves first. And in Leon Valley, it could be beetles. It could be caterpillars. Uh, could actually be rodents uh, getting after it. Now, did you choose the red bud or did you choose um, the other tree? I thought I got a red bud and a plum, but it turns out I got two Mexican plums. Okay, I'm just as happy about that because I don't know that they're selling the right kind of red bud. But, uh, and I hope your Mexican plum is the tree form, not the scrubby form. Um, it should be an excellent tree. I, my guess on a plum, it's probably a beetle. Try to catch them in the act. One little spritz of the insecticidal soap and they're done for. So how do you catch them? I mean, I work during the day, so are they a nocturnal? Yeah, go out go out in the evening, you know, 9, 10 o'clock once it gets dark, and that's when you're probably going to see them. Even if you don't see them, give them a spray at that time, and that should control them. Oh, and where can I buy that besides Shades of Green? Do they have it at Rainbow Garden? I know? would suspect they do. If they don't, they can get it. Tell them I said they need to have it on their shelves. Okay. I've only known that family for three generations, so uh, pretty good people over there. So if if they don't have it, yeah, tell them to call Adam Supply, and they can get it for you that afternoon. You are the best. And one more thing, I had a, a lemon tree sapling. It was doing good. I put a cage around it so the deer wouldn't get it. And now it has no leaves. It's like none. In the ground or in a pot? It's in, I put it in the ground. I thought you were supposed okay. to. Well, you may have to give it some winter protection. It's dried out a little bit too much somewhere along the way. When you water, you need to really soak it very, very deeply because it's got a relatively deep root system. Watering the surface probably didn't get enough to the roots and lost some leaves. Should come back out for you Uh Pick up a little Super Thrive while you're over at Rainbow and uh, mix up some of that. Spray it on and pour it over the roots and uh, should come right back out for you. And, Barbara, I'm going to let you go because I've got to go to news. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And Manny is up first. Good morning. Hey, Bob. Good morning. I got some tree questions for you today. Yes, sir. All right. So we inherited a couple years ago about a 25-foot orange tree, which we suspected may not be good, but it is good. And we had a great, a great season. Good. But we've got some oranges still left on the very top of the tree that we just cannot get to. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if we leave those to just fall off the tree on their own, will that be detrimental to the next season? No, not in any way, form, or fashion. Okay. It, it'll and... be just fine. Now, they may fall or they may do what's called mummifying, where they sort of dry up on the tree. But in neither case will it affect uh, your next season's production. All right. And on the same citrus, uh, so we've got some potted citrus, a Meyer, a Satsuma, and a Mexican lime. Mm-hmm. They're in some pretty large pots, and we're about 20 minutes south of downtown San Antonio. Uh-huh. Can we put those in the ground, or you know, is there, do, you, do you recommend leaving them in pots? Well, what you have already is probably some form of Satsuma. They are like mm-hmm. tangerines or like small oranges, and they are by far the most cold-hardy. So I'm going to say definitely, yes, your satsuma can go in the ground one year out of 20. It may need some protection. Your Myers lemon is cold-hardy down to about 26 degrees. So there are generally two or three nights a year when you may need to wrap it up uh, with insulate or some sort of a row cover, fabric, something like that to protect it. But uh, if you have a... Uh, you know, a protected area to plant it where it still gets good sun. 
it may do fine with no help from you at all. The lime, Mexican lime, is by far the least cold hardy, and it's going to suffer at 31 degrees. So your choice, you can either put it in the ground and plan on covering it regularly, or you can grow it in a fairly large pot and move it around uh, when that cold weather gets here. If it gets here, you know we're always going to have some. You just don't ever know how much. So uh, cold hardiness scale, least hardy Mexican lime, Fairly cold hardy is going to be your Myers lemon. Really cold hardy are going to be things like kumquats, which are like a little miniature citrus. And uh, and your satsumas should be pretty cold hardy in all but the very coldest of winters. Okay, great. I got one more if you got time. Go right ahead. All right. So about late February, early March, we planted a forest pansy red bud. Mm-hmm. And it is growing. It looks all right, but the leaves are dropping and a little bit spotted on there. Okay. And, you know, I, I just don't know what's going on with that. I don't well, know if you've got any ideas. A little bit of that is normal. Forest pansy is a fun red bud. Unfortunately, it's always grafted on eastern red bud rootstock, mm. and which is not crazy about our area. But my business partner, when she lived in town, had a forest pansy red bud that grew 30 feet tall and like 10, 15 years old when she moved to the country. So I think forest pansy is an interesting and a worthwhile tree growing. But like all red buds, it doesn't like it if it stays too wet, and it doesn't like it if it just stays excessively dry. And uh, forest pansy is going to be a little bit more susceptible. I think you're just looking at the effects of a hot, dry summer. I'd be deep watering it about every 10 days or so. How, how big is this tree now? How long do you think it's been in the ground? Uh, we've had it in since about March, and we I would say it's probably about maybe four to five feet tall right now. Yeah, you're going to be wanting to water it weekly. Once it gets a little better established, a little less often, but uh, I think it's getting a little drier than it really wants to be. Give it a good thorough soaking weekly. Not going to change a lot this fall, but uh, next spring should come out beautifully for you. All right. And about Althea's real quick, when do you recommend pruning those if we're trying to get some flower production and just have it bush out a little more? Well, pruning's not going to help your flower production, but uh, you mm-hmm. can certainly make them bushier. Uh, because they bloom primarily on new wood, uh, early spring's the time to prune them, uh, say okay. late February. Don't overdo it. Uh, the one thing that they always warn about with Altheas is being in the hibiscus family. They are susceptible to cottony root rot, but having said that, I don't think I've ever seen an Althea in this area with cottony root rot, and uh, they grew well in my mom's yard in East Tennessee where it got to 10 below zero. So you've chosen a super hardy shrub. As long as it's in good sun, you should get fairly good blooming through the summer months. All right, Bob. That's it. Thank you for your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Manny. Appreciate the call. Uh, Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. uh, Next up is Kay. Good morning, Kay. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I want to ask you some questions about mountain laurels. Okay. I want to purchase some, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if they come in the sizes of, like, the trunk part. I want it to be like a tree. Okay. Uh, But I want the trunk part to be, like, four to five feet tall. Mm Mm-hmm. Do they have such a thing? You will have to look around. I would always um, recommend that you get a container-grown tree. Um, You can probably get one that's three feet tall in a 15-gallon container. And if you look around, you can probably get a a four-foot tall one in a 15-gallon container. Probably going to cost you a little over 100 bucks. 
If you want something as more four, five, six foot tall, you're probably going to buy it in a wooden box, uh, and you're probably going to pay four or five hundred dollars for it. But for uh, one Mount Laurel, for one Mount Laurel, uh, they're just more expensive the bigger they get. See, but, my husband gets mad at me about that. Yeah, well, what, but I always seem to pick out the most expensive thing. Well, just tell him you were thinking about going clothes shopping and you've been admiring a four hundred dollar purse and a thousand dollar dress, and oh, he'll be happy to, that he, you said. Don't have to worry about that. <laughs> well, I, I yeah, you you can still mislead him just a little bit and make him very happy that you're getting a mountain laurel. Mountain laurels but can I be. I want to get like two, two for sure, maybe mm-hmm. three. Okay. So I don't know. Well, give you a price break the more you get. And I want to have somebody come plant them for me. Um, I'm too old to do I that. always tell people we get a price break if we buy a whole uh, semi full of plants. So right. I don't think you want a semi full of mountain laurels. The thing about mountain laurels is that they have a very delicate root system. And that's why I would never, there are a lot of landscapers out there that want to sell you a bald and burlap tree. I think it's a very bad idea with mountain laurels. Okay on oaks and some other things, but I would always look for a container-grown mountain laurel. I would be looking around, call some different nurseries, ask them what the biggest tree they have in a 15-gallon size pot is, and um, that's what I would be purchasing. I think that's the best value for what you're looking at. If you take care of a mountain laurel, it's capable of growing one to two feet a year. They're not as slow-growing as a lot of people would have you believe if you give them good care. And uh, once again, if you are paying somebody to plant it for you, you're going to pay you're going to pay a pretty good price. So well, I would have the same nursery planet that well, I bought it from. Yeah, and be sure that they have a guarantee that they will honor. Okay. I recently got a friend a couple of big oak trees because a pretty big name nursery planted two with a guarantee and then when those two died because we were planted incorrectly uh they said oh who are you we don't know you um oh, you no. know go find yourself another tree we're not going to honor any guarantees oh, so my. be careful who you buy from check out their reputation and um again if you can find a nice mountain laurel in a 15 gallon container you probably ought to be paying around 125 to 150 dollars for it You'll probably pay extra to have it planted, but if they're wanting to charge you much more than that, I'd be looking around a little further. Okay, well, I really appreciate that. Good and choice is on there trees. A time that we have to, I have to plant them, or can those be planted all year round? They can be planted year round. Best two months of the year are going to be October, November. But okay. as long as you're going to be home to take care of it, uh, I always tell people the best time is five to ten years ago. Second best time is today. Well, thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate your help. It's my pleasure, Kay. Thank you for the call this morning. All right, uh, next up is James. Good morning, James. Good morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sir. Hey, listen, um, when it rains, it pours. My water well pump was out for a few weeks, and during that hot spell, and the trees are starting to show some wear and tear. Uh-huh. So I got, it back, I got it back online last Saturday. This last week, I just watered everything real deep and thoroughly, my trees, or some of them. Well, lo and behold, I got two and a half inches of rain last night. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. And and two (laughs) inches of rainwater are better than two feet of well water, so I'm happy for you. That's my question. Uh, I've I've always wanted to get into the rainwater catchment, but I don't have the equipment, but I'm getting there. But my question is I have galvanized down 
patio cover, if you will. Uh-huh. And I caught a whole bunch of rain yesterday in just some big plastic uh, old pots that uh-huh. didn't have holes in them. Right. Can I use that on my plants if it's come off that galvanized oh, yeah. metal? Yeah. Okay. You've got some. Good. You've got some dirt. You've got some burb poop. You've got all kinds of things in there. So I wouldn't be drinking it at this point. And oh, no. when you get your your full scale rainwater catchment system in, you're going to put a couple of little filters on there. Your water's going to be a little bit cleaner. Only thing you're going to have to worry about is being sure that between now and when you use that water on your plants, that you don't grow too good a crop of mosquitoes. So. Oh, you can put a drop or two of orange oil in each pot every few days, or you can put in some of this uh, natural insecticide we call BTI, Bacillus thuringiensis israeliensis, which is a uh-huh. bacteria that doesn't hurt people but kills mosquito larvae. But no, at this point, the longer you store it, the more algae growth you're going to get, but that doesn't hurt anything. And, uh, um, you know, you, you can collect rainwater whenever it rains. If you have an air conditioner, You've got that condensate dripping out constantly next to your compressor there. Put a bucket under that and catch that, too. That's every, I mean, if you have a dog or something like that, you watch them. They'll go drink that water before they drink anything else. And that's also great water for your plants as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm all into, um, into natural water sources wherever you can find them. And uh, rainwater, condensate water, very hard to beat. Okay, on that point, on my yeah, my AC drain. I mean, in the summertime, it's just like a faucet. Well, yeah, yeah. It's just going out onto the in the yard there next to the house. But can I put a hose on that so that water would be good? I got a burrow that's about twenty feet from that drain, um, or would it be too much water for that oak tree? Ah, uh, no, I don't think it'd be too much water for an oak tree. Whereabouts are you located, James? Oh, I'm I'm southeast of Lyle. Oh yeah, so no, it, your your soil drains well. Your your oak tree would love you for it. Mine goes on a flower bed where I've got thryalis and uh, oh, all kinds of good things going, and it's it's the greenest part of my yard right now. So yeah, put ever remember it's going to have to get there by gravity flow. So uh, if it's downhill, it's uh, it's going to be most effective. But yeah, your tree will love you for it. It is sloping downhill. Uh, so perfect. Be perfect. One sure. quick one, if I have time, real quick. Yeah. Um, I, picked, I picked up, I didn't have time for a garden in the fall, but uh, going into the HEB the other day, they had a Juliet uh, for 75 cents. I said, gardener me, pick one up, and I put it in a pot. My question is, um, can I put some of that uh, growing green in the pot, or do I just need to stick with my um, I would stick with a Haster Grow, but if you've got a spot to stick it in the ground, Juliet's a big tomato. It's probably going to grow. It's going to grow six feet tall by the time we get into freezing weather. It's a small fruited tomato, which means it's not going to pay much attention to night temperatures. You should be picking plenty of fruit off of it. And if you want to keep it in a pot, you can. But it's going to be a lot easier to maintain if you plant it in the ground. And in the ground, the growing green's fine. Just in a pot, I'd, I'd has to grow would be my choice. Has to grow plant. Okay. I got a tall, uh, narrow tomato cage and a, a three uh, concrete wire. That's yeah. what I use in the ground. I can slip that on there. It's about four foot tall. That that should work, wouldn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. All right. Hey, I appreciate it as always. My pleasure, James. Thank you for the call. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be uh, Millie and Kevin and Mike. One line open, grab it if you like. Not much time left to get a line today. You know the number, 210-599-5555. I say good morning, Millie. 
Good morning. Good morning. Millie, are you there? Okay, you were cutting in and out a little bit there. I can hear you now. How can I help yes, you? It, uh, oh, okay. Um, when is the best time to plant strawberries? Generally in about October or November. Okay. And then um, blackberry bushes. Blackberries, you can plant whenever you find them. They are generally most abundant uh, around the first of the year, January, February. And if you're going to plant bare root uh, plants or if you're ordering them online, January, February, the very best time to plant. If you find them growing in a container in a nursery, you can plant them this afternoon. You do those 365 days a year, but availability gets uh, a lot better on blackberries, on asparagus, on several different things. January, February, the time you're going to find the widest variety of availability. My favorite blackberry happens to be one called Roseboro. Uh, there's also one that's been around for about 50 years called Brazos. It's very thorny and a little bit smaller berry, but it's a very popular berry. Stay away from the so-called thornless blackberries. They need a colder climate, and they do not perform well here. Okay. Thank you. Got your work cut out for you. Now, in the vegetable garden right now, you could be planting broccoli plants. You could get in another summer crop of bush beans and summer squash and things like that. So uh, get ready for these other things. But if you're a vegetable gardener, you ought to be able to pick something every day of the year. So don't have to put off gardening until November. But uh, that's going to be the best time. October, November, you'll find the strawberries most widely available at the best prices during that time. So call me anytime I can help. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Millie. Appreciate the call. Top of the board, it's going to be Kevin and Mike and Joe, and somebody's already grabbed that fourth line. Ah, good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm great, sir. How are you today? Another day in paradise. Yes, sir. It's a little warm. Might be tending toward the other option, but uh, we'll be back to a little more pleasant paradise temperature soon. Matter of time. Yes, sir. I've got a problem with cut ants, uh, but I've been fighting cut ants for the last three years. They come back heavy. Uh, yep. I live south in, between Laverne and Floresville. I was originally fighting them with poison, but as you know, cut ants, their uh, infrastructure underground, they, right. you poison one hole, they'll pop up right away. So yep. the last thing I've been doing uh, is letting them come out, and I get the pear burner out after they come out and burn <laughs> the whole trail. I'll get more satisfaction. But. Uh, <laughs> Getting a little dangerous to do in the kind of drought we've got out there. What kind of plants are they going after in your landscape, Kevin? Uh, oak trees. They took all, I went on vacation a while back. They took all the ochre plants out, all the leaves off the ochre plants, where they had like 30 or 40. Uh, they got all the pepper plants. It's probably about 14 of those. It's anything, anything they can get their teeth on. Okay. Well, if you want to do it, with a natural product, if you know where the mounds are, and keep in mind that leaf-cutting ants don't eat the leaves. They take those leaves down, they put them in that underground chamber, and then they eat a fungus that grows on the leaves. Sulfur is a good natural fungicide, and you can get what they call wettable sulfur. Really cheap, available at most hardware stores and certainly any feed store. And you, you get it, what's called uh, sulfur 50W, stands for 50% wettable sulfur. And you wherever you find the mound, you just dust that fairly heavily over the whole area where you feel like that underground chamber is. 
it goes down into the soil and it kills the fungus. The ants have nothing to eat and the colony dies out. That can be a problem if you don't know where the colony is, and sometimes it takes a little while to die out. But that's one of the best natural ways to control them. The other thing you can do, and this is poison, but it's not toxic like some of the stuff you've probably been using. Um, You know, you can identify where the top of that mound is. You can go out to the center and take a piece of rebar or something like that. Just poke down into the ground. You will feel it break in through the top of that chamber. Uh, Get one of these room foggers. I don't recommend it for your home, but sometimes it's uh, what you resort to on killing the cut ants. But uh, turn that thing upside down, trigger it like you do, put a black plastic garbage bag or something like that to hold all the fumes down there. And it will literally fill up that chamber, fumigate the mound, and usually kill the entire colony. Now, like I say, it's not organic, but it sure beats using some of the toxic insecticides. And it's much faster than the natural sulfur. So those are a couple of different options for you. Now, obviously, you can't do it on your okra and on your pepper plants. But if they are going after things like your oak trees or crepe myrtles, something like that, there's a product you can buy that is called Tanglefoot. It's the nastiest, stickiest stuff you have ever seen. It makes axle grease look like hand lotion. Uh, What you do, you don't apply it directly to the trunk, but on that oak tree, take either a piece of aluminum foil, you know, a couple of three times around the tree, or a piece of plastic wrap two, three times around the tree, and then you spread, uh, take a tongue depressor or something like that, and spread a band of this tangle foot about two inches wide all the way around the trunk of the tree. The ants cannot cross it. Uh, If you make a little narrow band, they'll just throw one of their buddies on there and then walk across his back to get beyond the tangle foot. But if you make that band a couple of inches wide, that'll totally protect uh, a tree. But unfortunately, like I say, just, uh, you know, a big old single trunk, something like that, it's easy to do. On your peppers and okra, it's a lot tougher. So uh, uh, kill out the mounds where you can find them. Uh, somebody had told me if you put fungicide on the leaves, like usually they leave a trail of leaves back right. to their hole. If you put fungicide on that, it has the same effect you were saying earlier. It, it keeps the um, the mold or the uh, that grows on the on the leaves that they eat. Uh-huh. It kills that, so they have nothing to eat as well. You well, know, you would have to get all the leaves. And the fungicides yeah. that we use to control black spot and powdery mildew and things like that are probably not going to control the fungus that the ants eat. So I don't think that's going to be as successful for you. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. I'll try that sulfur stuff. Good luck on it, Mike. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Bye. All right. uh, Next up. Oh, that was Kevin. Next up is Mike. (laughs) Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I got two-tenths of an inch of rain last night. Well, that's a good start. But Friday, I got seven tenths. I, you're almost up to an inch. Good for you. I know it. I'm working on it. <laughs> Very good. Bob, I have a question on a, I hope I pronounce it correctly. It's a curcuma. Okay. Flower. Yeah. C-U-R-C-U-M-A. Uh-huh. And uh, I have a pot here, oh, probably a 10-inch uh, across the top uh, pot. And uh, I have maybe... Uh, four or five pretty good size uh, uh, plants in there and maybe four or five smaller ones. Mm-hmm. 
should I separate those or wait till spring or what? No, I. you can let them grow together. They're not really going to crowd each other. Um, and that's one thing I think would be better growing several of together in a pot rather than trying to grow individual plants. Okay, well, I had just one that had a flower on it mm-hmm. on the top. It was for several weeks. Yeah. It's, it's just now starting to uh, die off and go away. But uh, can I leave it outside uh, cold hardy to around 20 or? I maybe 25. Um, you don't see it real widely grown in this area because the winters can be hard, especially when we go suddenly from, uh, you know, very cold to, uh, you know, very hot and then back to very cold again. So it's not a plant that's real widely grown. It's in the ginger family. And like I say, it, uh, in a pot, remember that a pot can freeze solid all the way through. So that's why I'm probably not going to leave it outside down to 20, maybe to 25. It's just, if it's very brief cold, and it's going to warm back up pretty quickly. But if it's going to get seriously cold, bring it in. Okay, I'm, I can do that. Well, I thank you very much for your time, and uh, pray for more rain. <laughs> Amen to that. Well, thank, thank you, you for Bob. the call, Mike. Thank you, sir. And Bye-bye. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Joe and E.T. and Robert, and good morning, Joe. Good morning, Bob. Morning, I sir. I a couple of questions. Well, actually, yep. Yeah. I have uh, hanging baskets, two, hanging, two three hanging baskets, and uh, hibiscus. Okay. Now, before this high heat came on, uh, they were flowering beautifully, and then little by little, they started going down, and uh, I wasn't too sure about the watering, so I watered a little bit every morning. They were doing good. But I found out on the hanging baskets, if I, if I didn't water it uh, that morning or that day, by the next day, they were real droopy. Oh, yeah. And we, in the nursery, we have to water hibiscus and hanging baskets sometimes two and three times a day. Uh, oh, this time of year, in this kind of heat, I think it would be almost impossible to water too often on those but be sure it's not how much water you use it's how often you water and when you water you want to really soak it thoroughly there's no such thing as too much you could do it too often but in this kind of heat once or twice a day you're not going to go wrong and uh, if you don't water that much you're going to start seeing a lot of yellow leaves and even after you start watering properly you'll see more yellow leaves for about six weeks afterwards so don't let it get to that point um, you'll see a lot more flowers if you water a little bit more often. Now, some varieties of hibiscus, the blooms may sunburn a little bit. The leaves should not, but especially some of the reds. I mean, by the middle of the afternoon, uh, they actually look sunburned. So I find the yellows, the oranges, those are the ones that seem to stand up to the sun the best. But uh, you just need to water more thoroughly and more often, Joe. Get through this really intense heat. By the time we get on into October and things, you'll probably be able to come back to once a day. But hibiscus are pretty thirsty plants, and they should never, ever allow to become bone dry. Yeah, the hibiscus started getting yellow leaves, so I started watering a little bit more heavier. Yeah. And, uh, but I would have uh, eight to ten flowers on the hibiscus, beautiful, but they were red. Right. And then uh, I watered more, so the, the yellow leaves kind of, kind of stopped. Uh-huh. But uh, uh, there's no blooms anymore. And well, the hanging basket, the petunias and the begonias, 
they're just about gone. Yep. Uh, it seems to me like they're really dying now, even though I'm still watering them. Yeah, it's just too hot for them. If you're looking for something flowering in a hanging basket this time of year, purslane, portulaca, periwinkles, they're going to stand up to the heat a lot better than uh, than begonias and petunias are going to. When it cools off, yeah, it's hard to beat a petunia, but uh, this time of year we got to take some of this really tough. And like I say, for flowering uh, in an annual plant, purslane, portulaca, periwinkles, those are going to be my three choices for your hanging baskets. And on your hibiscus, they will start blooming again as soon as it cools off just a little bit. Just maintain that watering. Uh, fertilize them every couple of weeks. Has to grow or something like that. And uh, as soon as it cools off, they'll be back to pretty heavy bloom production. Thank you so much. I'm glad now that I, I hated to. I already lost one with the hibiscus last year. It, it started dropping the leaves, getting yellow. Maybe it was just lack of water. I'm right pretty now. sure that was it. So anytime you have a question, you call me. I, I've been there, done that. I've uh, I've killed almost every plant you can kill, and but I try to figure out why so I don't do it again. And in the case of hibiscus, it's virtually always, uh, other than freezing weather, this kind of weather where they get too dry, that's what usually does them in. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your help. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Joe. Thank you have for the call day. this morning. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, next up is E.T. Good morning, E.T. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day. It's just get ready to sweat because it's still August, but <laughs> fall's pretty yeah. close. Oh, yeah, that's great. I got at least a quarter, almost half an inch of rain yesterday. And I did Excellent. Brownsville. Well, it oh, sounds, uh, sounds a little more widespread than I realized. That's a good thing. I hope this trend continues. Okay, uh, last week you mentioned something about peat moss. I got a three cubic foot of peat moss. You know, what can I use it for? A bag of that? Well, I guess you can just mix it in with soil. I don't really like peat moss. I think anywhere that anything says use peat moss, I would use compost. But since you have it, spread it out pretty widely. You don't want to put too much in any one place. But you can blend it in with your garden soil, the soil in your flower beds. I don't really like it in potting soils, but uh, garden soils, it's um, I, I guess it's okay. But in the future, you get a better product. You get more for your money with compost than you do with Canadian peat moss. Yeah, because I got, you know, some old old dirt, you know, kind of clay dirt, you know, some, mm-hmm. in some flower pots. If I yeah. mix it like two parts of dirt and one part of uh, peat moss, would that be okay? Go to about three parts dirt and one part of peat moss, and that'll be okay. Okay, another question. That lady earlier mentioned about strawberries. I uh-huh. planted some early this year to produce some strawberries. They're all green right now. Were they overwinter? Yes, your plants should definitely overwinter. Uh, they'll not only overwinter, they tend to put out little uh, stolons, they're called, they, and they will form new plants out on the ends of those that you can leave right where they are, or you can, you know, plant them in different areas around. But uh, unless the temperatures get below 20 degrees, in which case you might want to cover them, uh, but, you know, light freezing weather doesn't bother their strawberries one bit. Okay, great. And one more question. Uh, I found some old seeds I had in a container. Uh-huh. I'm not sure if they're uh, cantaloupe or if they're, uh, you know, like uh, a guinea squash. <laughs> and the deer ate them, you know, half of them all the way down. They're coming back now, but would they still produce? Um, if, if they're zucchini, they should come out and produce if they're one of the melons, uh, we may or may not have time for them to uh, 
to make more. But uh, are they blooming at this point? You, of course, have yeah, to right have. Yeah, right now, because I was about two weeks ago, the deer ate them, right? And they're flushing out now again. I, I put up some chicken wire around them so they deer leave them alone. Very good. And they got yellow flowers right now, pretty much abundant, right? So uh, do one of them, uh, you know, small brush deals, you know, or what? Right, right. Well, and the flowers that have the yellow down in the center of the bloom, those are your male flowers, and you want to take that pollen and dust it into the flowers that don't have the pollen down in the middle because those are going to be your female flowers. But uh, you should grow some uh, very good melons or zucchinis, either one. Zucchini, of course, is going to make a squash that's ready to eat in about 10 days. Melons, it takes much longer, so we're just going to have to wait and see which one you have, but uh, yeah, you should have time definitely to get a bunch more zucchini and probably to get some more melons. Okay, all right. Thank you, Bobby. Have a great day. You do the same. I appreciate the call, E.T. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, let's stay right straight back to the phone calls. Going to be the Robert that's been holding for a little while, then Ann, then the Robert that just called in. Don't know any better way to put that, but let's get started. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Bill. Uh, Bob, I listen to your show every weekend. Uh, I was just wondering about uh, humic acid and fluvic acid as a... uh, uh, adding it to soil as amending the soil inside. What you think about that, and whether it would be granular or liquid, would be the best on there. Mm-hmm. I noticed on the back of the uh, happy frog, the uh, they have a Leon Ardite um, Leonardite. You know, derived from it. So yep. I was just wondering if you think about that. Well, humic acids. There are. I asked uh, uh, Professor Elaine Ingham about humic acids. I thought there were a couple of humic acids. She told me there are a hundred thousand different humic acids. And they all do things to improve the soil. Leonardite is like a low-grade coal, and this is where a lot of this material is derived from. Um, I think you get good value either way, What you're probably going to buy it under either names of liquid humate or dry humate. Uh, Medina packages some of the best stuff out there. Um, the Happy Frog brand uh, from uh, New... Uh, let me see... Uh, I'm trying to say the name of the company, but Happy Frog is uh, is a good brand as well. And uh, yes, they are great soil improvers. They are not things that you have to add real often, but um, you know, mixing some into your potting soil, mixing some into your garden soil, watering uh, the liquids into the soil, you're, you're going to get nothing but good results. It supports organic life. It loosens the soil, and um, I mean. You could overdo it. You're never going to hurt except your bank account. But in reasonable quantity, I think humates liquid or dry are one of the best soil amendments you can use. Great. What do you think about in hot composting piles, adding some granular stuff or something for the duration of the time that the compost is being, you know, cured on there? Well, realize that the you're looking at microbial activity, principally bacterial activity, uh, in compost piles, and with hot composting, you're getting basically thermophilic microbes. I like more a static pile method where the compost goes through several different temperatures, so you're getting thermophilic, mesophilic, and psychrophilic microbes working for you. But uh, they're just, you know, there's no such thing as bad compost, but some of it's better than others. And I, I like more of the static pile that I'm not trying to push too hard, but whatever works for you is fine by me. It's a good organic process. 
Right, and I got a second question too. Uh, I went to your place and I bought a shishito uh, pepper plant, you yep. know, and I transplanted it to a bigger pot and I kind of made my proprietary fertilizer mix. And then I noticed it started getting aphids on the pepper plant. And I was doing research on the internet and they were saying that aphids can be a, a, a symptom and really it can be caused by an imbalance of fertilizer or too much nitrogen. And I was wondering, wondering what you think about that as far as seeing aphids that it could be on you know my part as adding too much fertilizer or having an imbalance of fertilizer. Well, it, uh, it aphids are a sign of stress. You could be letting it get a little too dry. You could have not enough light, or you could have too much nitrogen in your fertilizer. Don't worry about it. Spray a little spinosad soap on there, get rid of the aphids, and get ready for some good peppers. Okay, yeah, great. That plant is really growing good, man. I mean, oh, yeah. the small one that you sold, I mean, it's like, you know, five times as large. You, know? you just yeah. you just didn't get enough of them. Plant more next yeah. time around, yeah. Robert. I think yeah. you'll yeah. really, <laughs> really enjoy them. going to let you go so I can get to Ann. Good morning, Ann. Good uh, morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have four sago palms. Okay. About four feet tall in a very close area. Okay. The fronds are touching each other. Uh-huh. I want to kill them. <laughs> uh, we need the area for the children to play in, and you just can't do that with all those sago palms. They were here when we moved in. Mm-hmm. So how do I go about getting rid of them? Well, the easiest thing to do is dig them up. Um, I mean, and they are very valuable. If you've got sago palms that are four feet tall, if you went out and bought those at a nursery, you'd pay $300 a piece for them. So this is the time of year in the heat that they can be transplanted with very little root ball. So uh, you're just going to take a sharp-bladed shovel and uh, go two, three inches out from the base of each one of those. And, you know, they've got some thorns, so wear some gloves, wear something Mm -hmm. where you're not going to get stuck. But just okay. go straight down, maybe 12 inches around, uh, dig them out of the ground, and you're rid of them. They do not sprout back from the roots. And, okay. you know, it needs to be done while the weather is still hot now. But, uh, you know, you might even ask your friends. Uh, you may have somebody doing some landscaping, and it's being quoted, uh, you know, $1,000 for a sago palm that size. Tell them, well, hey, I know where you can get for them for free if you come dig them up yourself. Well, somebody did come and try and dig one up, and they used, I think, I don't know what they used, but they gave up. They left, you know, because well, it was just too hard. They didn't, uh, they didn't, they didn't know what they were doing. Okay. It's, uh, it's like anything else. It's like kind of being a do-it-yourself car repair guy. Yeah, unless you really know what you're doing, you're going to cause more harm than good. Anybody that's uh, ever planted a tree, anybody knows how to use a shovel properly, should be able to dig those sagos up. Now, if you know somebody's coming, do them a favor. Water the night before, soften that soil up a little bit, but you don't Mm -hmm. have to dig a root ball. You can dig very close to the trunk and still have them survive and grow extremely well. If you have, like, a neighborhood newsletter or anything like that, I'm I'm not going to tell you to put it in a big paper or something because you might attract somebody undesirable, which I don't want. But uh, you know somebody around your neighborhood, your church group, your civic group of any sort, let somebody know you've got some uh, plants that are worth several hundred dollars a piece you're willing to give them away if they will dig them up. And especially okay. if they've got a teenage son or two, I think you'll find a taker. Will it come back from whatever's left in the no. ground? No, they do not come back from okay. the roots. You need okay. to get the whole trunk out, but it only goes down about six inches, and those roots, a sharp shovel will cut them easily. Okay, well, thank you, Bob. My pleasure, Ann. Good luck with it. Wish I needed (laughs) some sagos. (laughs) Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome.